everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and uh, that is a Penguin Random House publication, 10 Speed Press, that came out a couple summers ago, and it's been selling every sen- everywhere since and doing okay. That book turned into this podcast because I just had so much more to say. And this is where we talk about everything that goes into making the most out of motherhood, parenting, raising our kids, living in this big world. And that includes pregnancy and healthcare and politics and race and feminism and money, everything. Let's get to it, shall we? So we have rolled past 4th of July in just the weirdest political climate of my entire life. And that's saying something because I'm well over 50. Uh, Around here, we kept things pretty quiet. We didn't really do a whole lot. Um, Made a pie, had a barbecue, hung out in the yard. We didn't blow anything up. No fireworks. The neighbors did, though, and my dog was appropriately concerned. Not freaked out like a lot of dogs are, but deeply concerned. He's terrified of windshield wipers. That just, you know, puts him over the edge. But this was just like, you know, what is that? And he showed some pretty good coping skills. He just crawled into his kennel and slept through all the rest of the evening's explosions. That's pretty good, right? So the sun is out here in my beloved Portland. And thank God, right? You've all been listening to me whine about the rain all year long. And thank you for your patience. But now it's sunny and warm and the garden's great. Um, I actually, I'm recording this with my window open, which I usually don't do. Um, And if you listen back on previous episodes, every now and again, you might hear my neighbor's um, lawn crew in the backyard. And uh, I'm not hearing that anymore. And I come to find out that my neighbor and his wife, who had lived there for 65 years, moved on to a retirement home. And now that house is going to be purchased by some other young family. They lived there for 65 years in one house. And you know, we weren't real close neighbors, but we were back fence neighbors close enough. And you get used to hearing somebody's living sounds. Gonna miss it. We'll see what the new family sounds like. Anyway, here in Portland, Portland puts on an incredible blues festival every year. Uh, over the 4th of July weekend. And there's some really great musicians. And uh, I went for a couple of days. And I heard the Greyhounds. That was fun. And uh, Dirty Revival was there. Oh my God, what a show. What a powerhouse show. And you remember, we talked with um, Dirty Revival's lead singer, Sarah Clark, while back on an episode um, that was titled, When Mom is a Rock Star, Literally. There was another band that we saw, great, great performance, Southern Avenue. Dang, if you get a chance to catch them, that was fun. So let's see, what else? I want to get to some listener emails this week. Um, But like I did a few weeks back, I want to get our guests to help me answer them. Also, it's been a little while since we've had an obstetrician on the podcast. Last time was Neil Shaw, I think, and... He was talking about some of the same things that our guest and I are going to talk about today. So let's get Dr. Amanda Calhoun on the line. Hello. Hi, Amanda. This is Jeannie. How are you? 
I'm doing well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I um, did not read your bio yet, and I often do that during the intro. Um, but what I want to do is I want to read a little bit about you um, and then get okay. started. How does that sound? Sounds great. Cool. Dr. Amanda Calhoun is an OBGYN in Oakland, California at Kaiser Permanente. Um, it also says on there that you chose to join the OBGYN group at Kaiser Permanente East Bay, largely based on the diversity of the patient population, the community of warmth and respect, and the commitment of the providers to patient empowerment. That's a pretty cool bio. And just starting there, my first question should be a doozy. Who are you and what do you do? <laughs> um, so I am the Director of Maternity Services here in uh, Kaiser Permanente Medical Center in Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. And I spend about half of my time doing um, uh, OBGYN in the hospital. So a lot of assessing women in labor, uh, delivering babies, doing C-sections, taking care of um, high-risk pregnancies. And then I spend about half of my time doing um, administrative work, but that's mostly based on system fixes to um, issues in maternity care. So that would be on the high-quality care side, um, figuring out how we can make sure that patients are getting transfused at the appropriate time if they have a hemorrhage, and how do we build our systems to optimize that? Or it could be something um, on the care experience or service side, um, so that if a patient has a, let's say, emergency C-section, that somebody's going back and debriefing with them, that I do a lot of, uh, sort of reconstructing the story. Mm -hmm. So I take care of um, the birth experience, both on the clinical side um, and also on the experience side. In terms of the clinical side, are you a hospitalist or do you also see private patients or, or see patients in the office? I did for a decade, but now I'm a hospitalist. Now I just work in um, on labor and delivery. How do you like that? Um, you know, there's things that I miss about seeing patients in the office, especially around uh -huh. um, uh, continuity. But I, um, but I love being here in this birth moment mm -hmm. um, at this critical juncture in people's lives and helping them navigate it in the way that they really, um, the way that they want it to be. Yeah. I always tell patients, my number one priority is your safety, mm -hmm. but really close right behind that is your birth experience. Yeah. That's a pretty unique experience, but it's one that's up and coming and it's one that I appreciate a lot. You know, that perspective of, you know, your safety, your experience, because so many women are presented with, you know, do whatever is necessary for your baby's safety. And, you know, that's the best we're going to hope for mom. So I, I appreciate mm. that little twist. So. Well, and also, I think that um, 
women have the impression and so many doctors give the impression that there aren't options, that there's only one way to do things. And the truth of the matter is, especially in obstetrics, there are many different ways to approach things. And I believe that a well-counseled woman can make decisions about her health. Yeah, I agree with you. So you and I um, have kind of known each other for a short bit online. And um, recently, some of your tweets have just been really hitting the target in terms of everything that we talk about here on Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, which is why I tweeted you and said you should come on the podcast. (laughs) And, um, you know, some of the other things that that you have included in in your sort of about me page is, you know, part of your story of who you are and what you do. And you mentioned that you're interested in maternity excellence. And we're going to talk a lot about that and family planning, surgical and non-surgical management of fibroids and teen pregnancy. You also speak French and German and medical Spanish. (laughs) <laughs> I speak of, you've got all the deep huh? I, well yeah a little bit I, I relate to that medical Spanish I used to be able to speak medical Spanish in a labor setting only <laughs> put me in the cardiac unit and I was wounded <laughs> exactly <laughs> but I could I could talk a family through their labor pretty well is that your pager that I'm hearing, or do you have a goose in your office? It is, and I'm, t- I'm I really <laughs> apologize. I told them I cannot come. I'm in the middle of something, and I apologize. <laughs> well, you can leave it on. Just to our listeners, um, Dodger Calhoun does not have a goose in her office. That's just her pager. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you are an avid tweeter, which I think mm-hmm. Twitter is a really incredibly powerful tool. I mean, both for good and for evil shall we say, you know, we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing a lot of just plain nonsense and a lot of pure fun. But I also think that it is a form of citizen journalism that is both a gift and an opportunity for people alive today to talk about issues that are really important. And I, um, I love it that you know, there are a lot of people in the Twitter sphere that are, are raising the elevation of conversation around maternal health care and motherhood and, and all of that. I appreciate it. And I, um, it's one of the most fun things that I do um, to take either a complex concept or a, an experience that has a lot of emotional weight or just something to lift people's spirits and it just fill it down into, you know, 140 characters or less or an image in just a few words. Um, I think that that gives us the opportunity to build bridges Mm -hmm. with our patients Mm -hmm. and with the outside world and really with each other because there are always people out there going through something similar or, in a similar clinical situation and you never know where you're, when your words might land um, in a way that's very meaningful for somebody else. I also like it because, you know, so often patients um, and maybe especially women, but I'm not positive about that are given the information from their healthcare providers, you know, just don't go on the internet, whatever you do, don't go on the internet to get your information, which is just really old fashioned and no longer, Right. that's not how we get our information anymore. And people feel like, oh, if I go do that, if I go, you know, 
behind my doctor's back and go read these articles and studies than dot, 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 fill in the blank, whatever. I love it. I want people to read all of it. I want them to, you know, know how to see a study for what it is. I want them to know a good website from a bad website. I want them, you know, people are smart. They're smart. True. I will say, though, that I do, I do think that it has limits mm-hmm. because there's a lot of bad information out there. And especially um, around obstetrics well. and maternal health. And yeah. especially around obstetrics. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I encourage patients to read, but then bring it back to us and let us Yes, that's what I was going to say. Or let's make sure that we're going, you know, to point patients <clears throat> towards either our own um, websites or homepages, things where I know the content's being vetted by people who I either trust or I know are um, practicing evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, you know, steer them towards reliable sources of some sort. I love that. I, I, encourage, exactly. I encourage patients to, you know, if you see something that's pertinent to your healthcare experience, grab the link. And if you have email access to your physician, send it over. That couldn't hurt. Absolutely. If you have an appointment coming up and you think that this study relates to you and your pregnancy or whatever, print it off. Take it with you to the appointment mm-hmm. and ask your doctor to, you know, take a minute to discuss it with you. It's True. Unfortunately, it rarely takes a minute. I know. Um, I know. I know. Yeah. It's something. It's a way to, you know, start to fan out people's um, information resources. One thing. Well, and as a parent, you're going to get endless unsolicited advice. On oh, my God. Oh, my children. God. Yeah. So it's just the beginning. Uh huh. It is. So you tweeted a few things recently that, let's talk about the tweets. You tweeted about a new consumer affairs report that's out that says C-section rates are down, but only slightly. And while that's Mm -hmm. encouraging, it's also kind of frustrating because everybody all over the place, everywhere knows, you know, many of the practical um, steps that have to be taken to turn this around. And we still haven't taken them. Some places have, but it's still patchy. What's your mm-hmm. take on What's your take on that report? The thing is that it's just too variable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I practice inside of Kaiser Permanente, so we are essentially a closed system with four million members in Northern California. So we are in quite good control, to, to, better than anyone else, at least mm-hmm. um, in the state at controlling what goes on on our labor and delivery units. Mm -hmm. And there are some critical moves that have been identified on how to decrease the C-section rate. So one of the biggest issues is that physicians don't like being told what to do. No, they don't. And you're you're (laughs) never going to be faulted for doing the C-section in that moment. Right. Because in that moment, it seems like, oh, the baby couldn't fit. Right. Or, oh, the baby's in distress. Yeah. But if you had waited two more hours, could the baby have fit? Maybe. Or if you had waited two more weeks and had she gone into labor on her own and you not induced her. Or if you um, were more facile with reading fetal heart rate um, monitoring uh, and you're on the same page as your nurse, 
then would you not be calling that fetal distress and actually resuscitate the baby in the uterus? Mm -hmm. So in the moment, you will never be faulted for doing it by the people who are immediately, almost never, by the people who are immediately around you. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard. It takes a lot of discipline to take a systems-level approach uh, to preventing uh, C-section. But that is something that I think that we do um, at Kaiser Permanente extremely well. I think so, too. And I had a conversation recently with a midwife at a Kaiser Permanente facility um, in the Pacific Northwest. And, you know, she, too, is talking about the high quality of the culture of care at Kaiser Permanente facilities that she's worked at that really encourages providers to be able to, you know, take a breath, slow down, reevaluate. You know, just not necessarily be as interventive. Right. But they're never going to get under our watch a tea time C-section. They're never going to get a C-section because somebody is impatient and they want to go play golf. Right. Or go have a cup of tea, however you choose to interpret it. Or they want to be home for dinner or, yeah, home for the weekend. Yeah. Right. Like, do I want to be go to my kid's basketball game? Of course I do. And yeah. you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go. And I'm going to leave you with my colleague. And we have an incredible, fully integrated health, electronic healthcare record that's going to tell all about you. I'm going to try to give a warm handoff and talk to her about who you are and who you've been. Mm-hmm. But um, you're not, I'm not so arrogant to think that I'm the only person who can take care of you and that me being there is more important than what's best um, for you and your health and your baby. Yeah. I think that a lot of patients still don't, I mean, they get it on one level, but they don't get it that yes, that is your doctor. And yes, you are invested in a specific outcome with that doctor, but guess what? That doctor also has a second grader and a costume that has to be at school right. tomorrow. And she was up all night last night. Plus, she's got cramps. You know, she's human. Right. Let, right. let her work right. in a humane setting. You know, people, they get it, but they don't necessarily get it. So I, I think... Not when it's them. Right, I know. But I think that um, the more that the patient population becomes comfortable with the concept of hospitalists who, you know, uh, just for listeners who don't know that what that means is you're taking care of the patients on the labor unit, not private practice patients. I mean, that's your job is there on the unit. So you don't have to go back and forth right. between well, buildings. Right. And that all, but that all of those of us in the hospital, many of us do have our patients mixed in there. So all so the patients are all funneled into um, funneled into the labor and delivery unit. So that's the expectation. Mm. We set that expectation throughout the entire pregnancy. Yeah, yeah, it works. You guys have really good outcomes. Yeah, the other piece too is um, well, a couple other pieces that really help us. Um, one is partnering with midwives. Mm-hmm. So. W- the majority, actually, of our deliveries um, are overseen by our midwife colleagues. So for low-risk birth, there's good evidence in the literature 
that if your birth is being managed by a midwife, you are more likely to have a vaginal birth as opposed to um, a C-section. Yeah. So with their increased toolkit around um, positioning, greater patience, um, you know, staying very family-centered, I like to think that I do that too, but I have to admit that they probably do it better. And so it is a good thing for yeah. our low-risk patients um, to be managed by a, uh, by a midwife. <clears throat> the other thing is that other couple of things that I think help, we all train together. So mm-hmm. we do drills together, the nurses, the docs, the managers, the midwives, we all drill together and we all do fetal heart rate monitoring training together. Um, so that we're speaking the same language, we're seeing the same things, we're recognizing similar patterns. And you're seeing each other in the same roles. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. It takes the mystery out of it. Yeah. For the last thing I'd say is for a unit to have a complexity manager. So to have a physician in charge of the unit so that um, to help decrease um, variability um, around uh, providers. Like can people have preferences? Of course they can have preferences. But to be a stickler about not inducing patients before 39 weeks unless there's a medical complication, Mm -hmm. to keep in mind that you have three really sick preeclamptic patients in antepartum, so you probably shouldn't time your C-section at that same time. Exactly. You know, someone who's looking at how the whole unit is working Mm -hmm. as opposed to just the individual patient. That used to be the job of the nurse manager on the unit or the, or the shift manager. But it, that was an RN um, at, at one level when I was working. That was an RN responsibility. Whoever was the charge yeah, nurse a, of that shift. A very, was, yeah. a very good charge nurse mm-hmm. um, can do that. I think that it's a more powerful when the charge nurse is partnered with a physician director. That agrees with um, them and, and sees the same things that, that they're seeing. That has also, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I agree because nurses don't have as much power as doctors. So when you get into a predicament where there's a conflict of interest, well, no, that's not the right word, where people are seeing things differently, where there's a Different potential. perspective. Yeah, yeah. Then, mm-hmm. you know, a doctor is going to have carry more weight. It's going to happen. Yeah. Well, and just have the same training as the other interlocutor. Yeah. So you're you're coming from the same um, from the same background, from the same perspective. Right. So another t- thing that you tweeted about was how California cut its maternal mortality rate, and specifically um, related to placenta accreta. And we're talking a little bit about you know w- why it's important to reduce C-section rates, but maybe we should do a little. Let's just do a little bit of education here about why you want to start Great. so sure <laughs> this is i told you this is one of my favorite topics i know um so um around the country um all comers if you are a woman who had a c-section for her first birth around the country you are over 90 you have a over 90 percent chance of having a second birth by c-section Yep. So, and in many places around the country, it's like 95% right. of the time, if you have one C-section, you are going to then 
deliver your subsequent children um, by C-section. Right. However, um, every time you have a subsequent C-section, you are at, you are creating scar inside of your uterus. And that scar inside of your uterus, on one hand, is a weak area, so it can rupture, Mm -hmm. um, particularly around time of labor. But worse, the placenta can attach itself. It's going to be more, it's an adherent spot. The placenta is going to be more likely to attach itself um, at that site and then have a harder time coming off at the time of delivery, and the placenta starts growing into the muscle of the uterus, which can lead to catastrophic um, hemorrhage. Yeah, and hemorrhage means bleeding out, bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. Right. Yeah. Right. Heavy, and we've heavy been bleeding, and we've um, been seeing more and more of that as the national C-section rate has um, climbed over the last twenty years. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and. You know, many hospitals, including our own, have had to start developing complex teams of doctors, nurses, radiologists, um, gynecologic surgeons, surgical oncologists, um, to be able to handle these patients um, because of this um, dangerous interface between the placenta and the uterus. Did you say oncologists because they handle blood? They're the blood doctors? Sorry, no. I said surgical oncologists. Surgical oncologists? In, oh, because they do some of the most complex surgery and uh, you want the best surgical skills. Got it. Huh, interesting. Got it. So um, how did California cut its maternal mortality rate then? Let's talk about that <laughs> well, a little around, bit. Well, around – well – Well, there's cutting maternal mortality rate, and then there's decreasing death from accreta and hemorrhage and hysterectomies from accreta. So one of the main things you can do is encourage your patients to VBAC. So that's to attempt a VBAC, vaginal birth after cesarean. So there is good data that if you've had one C-section and pretty good rates for two C-sections also, that having a vaginal birth after a C-section is a safe thing to do if you are in an area that has immediate um, access to emergency obstetricians and anesthesiologists. Yeah. So, for example, um, in Northern California, Kaiser, um, over 25% of our patients will have a VBAC, will have a successful vaginal birth after a prior C-section, whereas around the country, it's only about 5% yeah. of patients will have a successful VBAC. And a lot of so that is... so much more likely. Uh, it, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say a lot of that has to do with simply culture of care and um, Absolutely. insurance premiums, you know, what kind of coverage a, a hospital system has to be able to handle it, the risk. Very much so. Very much so. Because you have to be able to handle the risk. It is very hard um, if there is a bad outcome. VBACs are hard to defend in court. But over time, that that is starting to shift. You really have to have in-house or immediately available within 
30 minutes is the community standard. Mm -hmm. But um, in a major city in a big hospital, you're going to have OBGYNs and anesthesiologists in the hospital. Right. Um, But you really do need that immediate ability to respond in order to do it safely. Yeah. Thus, your best action is to prevent the first C-section from happening so that you don't have to deal with all of the complexities around a second C-section versus a VBAC. Right. Yeah. So that's the trick. That's the trick. Yeah. But, it, but depending on what hospital system you're delivering in or even specifically what hospital, it can be a darn good trick. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And um, as I said before, some of the key steps are working with your midwives, not letting people do early um, inductions, um, making sure that you're um, collaborating with your uh, with your nursing staff, being very patient um, in labor, keeping up excellent operative delivery skills. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those sorts of things help you get away from having to do that, that first C-section. Um, how about appropriate use of pain management? This is something that I get emailed all the time. And I actually, um, it's actually a two-parter conversation starter. I wanted to talk to you about um, how your unit uses laughing gas. And I did an episode on that a little while back. But some of our listeners don't know about that. Um, but then I want to read you a listener email and <laughs> help have you help me answer her. Is that cool? Okay. Okay. Let's start. Great. Let's start though with talking a little bit about um, how your unit uses laughing gas and what it is. Nitrous sure. oxide. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. So we just introduced about six months ago nitrous to our unit. Now, of course, it's been around for practically 50 years yeah um in the dentist's office mm-hmm. but the and it used to be on labor that... units used to be on labor units Absolutely. before the 60s right yeah and so um it is inhaled and so it doesn't affect the baby because you're it doesn't stay in your system long enough for it to do so mm-hmm. because as you exhale it it's going right out of your system yeah. So it's just enough to ease the anxiety and sort of take the edge off, um, <clears throat> similar to the way um, a narcotic would in your IV, like fentanyl or morphine, mm-hmm. um, but without any of the side effects or without it getting into your systemic circulation, without it going into your blood supply. And and, and it and across to the baby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so for some patients, laughing gas is a perfect solution for just getting the edge off um, as you're getting into that transition point um, in labor or for little procedures. That's my new favorite thing um, for the uh, nitrous is if you are have an anxious patient and you're starting an IV or putting in a catheter, um, it works really well in that setting too. But we're big believers of giving patients options. Mm -hmm. So our patients, you know, can do showers, they can be on their birthing balls, they can do meditation. We have the laughing gas. Um, We use TENS units 
that stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, mm -hmm. which people use um, for back pain mm -hmm. often. So you mm -hmm. put little sticky pads that put electronic stimulation on your back, and that sort of redirects the nerves, if you will. And it's mm -hmm. particularly good for back labor. We have IV pain um, medication options. And then, of course, we have um, epidurals also. So by giving a patient a range of uh, management options, um, it empowers the patient to uh, own her birth uh, experience. And um, oftentimes, even if it doesn't get a patient all the way to the birth, having used some of those um, alternative uh, mechanisms for pain relief um, allows patients to move around more, to eat more, um, to have a less medicalized um, feeling to their birth. And we really try to change the conversation from being about pain to being about coping. Because everyone's experience of pain is something different. Um, I remember in my own first labor, it was before any of these changes had happened, and they kept saying, okay, on a scale from 1 to 10, what's your pain level? On a scale from 1 to 10, what's your pain level? Uh -huh. And so when you're in early labor, you're like, oh, my God, this is a 10. And then six hours later, you're like, oh, my God, no, that was a 4. Yeah. This is a 10. Yeah. Right? Like that, It doesn't even make sense, right. really, in labor. It's really just about how are you coping and what's, what's working for you. Yeah. Yeah. So – I kind of wish that I had read this this email um, before we started talking about pain, but I think we still. Oh, sorry. I, no, it's okay. I I think that we still have another layer to talk about here, and I love this one, this email, um, because it's kind of, it's a little bit funny and it's kind of bare and honest. She writes, "Hi, Jeannie. My friend lent me your book, and I read it." I liked the part about pain management options because so many people are telling me I have to go natural or I'll wreck my baby and have to have a C-section. But I don't want to go natural. I want an epidural. I don't want to feel pain at all if I don't have to. I've felt pain and I don't like it. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Claudia. <laughs> That's great. I like it. So whatever. I mean, there's just so many misperceptions yeah. um, out there. I know. And... In terms of epidural, I always find it ironic that people talk about damaging baby because that's actually the best part about epidurals is that 0% goes to the baby. Right. That's the whole concept of epidurals <laughs> is that you're putting a local anesthetic around the um, epidural space mm -hmm. around the nerves in your back mm -hmm. so that it's not impacting the baby at all. So there's zero, um, you know, side effect, if you will, or um, medication that's going to baby when it comes to epidural. Now, um, increasing rate for C-section, there have now been multiple longitudinal perspective studies telling us that when you have an epidural, it does not increase your risk for um, C-section. The one thing that would be counted, you know, as a negative is that it does increase pushing time. Mm -hmm. And to some extent that makes sense because if you can't feel the sensation of your pelvic floor, if you can't, if you don't have full control of those muscles, knowing where and how to push is quite difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I think that's 
to some extent, um, intuitive. So we got to ask, we got to answer Claudia's question straight up. She asks us, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> I think you're supposed to do what feels right to you, Claudia. Yeah. And if having an epidural is what seems right, that is absolutely what you should do. <laughs> and it can be done safely without harming your baby. And it does not mean you are going to get a C-section. And you're not going to wreck your baby, honey. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So this other email is a little bit less clear, but gives us a lot to talk about. And I um, I am not sure where this emailer is. Uh, I'm not sure where this is coming from, but I, I don't think that this is an American address. And I'm going to just use her first name. She writes, I am 21 years old. I just found out that I am pregnant. I would... I would to know about early birth. Is it possible to give birth early without C-section? Sincerely, and I'm not going to give her name, because something about this email says a lot to me. She's 21 years old, brand new pregnant, and already wants to know about early birth. Now, yeah. for me, yeah. that says that either she lives in a culture where there is a lot of mythology about you need to make sure that you give birth early so that you don't give birth to a baby that's too big. She might be in a country where delivering a normal-sized baby could actually put her at pretty big risk for, oh, you know, a fistula or an, a, a serious birth injury. Or she could mm -hmm. have accidentally gotten pregnant. And she's in a bit of a pickle. Right. And she lives in a culture where she'd better give birth at the right due date because anything earlier than that means that she was sexually active. So there's a lot there, hmm. you know? There's a lot there. And the other piece of that is I don't know what she means by early birth. Right. So does that mean... <clears throat> um, you know, a certain number of weeks or days before the due date? Is she actually talking about terminating the pregnancy? I don't know. Um, is she talking about, um, you know, making sure that you have labor right after you break your bag of water so that you don't get infected? Yeah. Um, there's so many issues there, but I just hope that she's in a place where she has care providers um, who can walk her walk her through this experience. So you and I have both been in developing countries where women don't necessarily have care providers to walk you through this. But, and, and you know, hopefully, hopefully there is a clinic or there is a midwife or there is somebody that this young woman can reach out to. But if there isn't, then the best that we can ask her is um, find a woman, find a woman that you trust and find a wise, there, there are wise women everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. We've been surviving as a species for millions of years. Right. So the, as I like to say, the wisdom is in the room. Yeah. We just have to be able to distill it from the, myth and fantasy that's also woven into birth yeah yeah so inga is oh i gave away her name uh-oh oh well um i don't know why i feel so protective about this girl but i do and i just want to let this mm -hmm. listener know that we hear you and we're thinking about you 
And we're hoping that you have a really good midwife or healthcare provider at your side that you can talk this through. And that you have a mama or a sister and auntie or somebody in your personal in your community. Life. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And my, one of my favorite things about practicing obstetrics is that birth exists everywhere. Yeah. And it is tremendously culturally mediated, emotionally mediated, societally, and it's just such a rich experience. That yeah. The basics are the same everywhere, but there's so much of ourselves that we bring to it, so mm-hmm. much of our culture, our background. Um, it's, it's, it's special. I've been truly, I'm so fortunate mm-hmm. to do what I love. Yeah, yeah. You are. You are. Mm-hmm. Well, you and I only get another few minutes together. So I have a couple more questions for you. But before I ask them, I want to make sure, what else is there that we should talk about? Um, or, or are you ready for the... We should talk about, I, I, you know, the, the one other thing that is I like to talk about, but I just don't have the answers. <laughs> um, but we need to keep asking questions is around healthcare disparities in the United States. Yes. So um, African-American women um, die at over three times the rate um, that white women do. And there is not a good explanation for this. And even in the state of California, where we have done incredible work to bring down the maternal mortality rate, mm-hmm. you know, which in the United States is around 23%, in California is around 7%. I mean, in, incredible how much work we've done in California. Mm-hmm. That gap has still persists. Yeah. So we've, and, we've, mm-hmm. we've been talking about race and maternal health care um, over the last, I think, four or five weeks. And each of the guests that I've spoken with have said, yeah, we know what it is. We know exactly what it, the problem is. It's institutional racism. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, what do you say? I think to a large extent, that is a true statement. Mm -hmm. But I think it's too big of a blanket statement. Yeah. I think it's more, yes, institutional racism is real. I personally really struggled with Fourth of July this year. I just had such a hard time getting behind it Um, as a black woman who's watching this yeah um yeah struggle so much um anyway but what does it actually look like like if we drill down and we want to help educate our colleagues create systems what is it that's happening and there was a great article um in the Gray Journal about six months ago about where patients get care Mm -hmm. in New York. And patients were going a farther distance to particular hospitals that actually were hospitals with much, much, much higher complication rates and potentially lower quality in the traditional sense Mm -hmm. care because that's where they felt comfortable. Right. Right. And that we have undermined the process of acquiring care so much 
by this, by not just institutionalized racism, um, but by unconscious bias. Yeah. That even when you take out the structural piece, just the way that our brains are wired in this culture, um, something is happening. Yeah. And we need to figure out how to drill down and what are the specific behaviors that need to be changed. There's a lot more work to be done and a lot more to talk about in this area. I want to talk about it. Very much so. Yeah, I want to keep talking about it. And I think that you and I can do, I, I would really like to hear your thoughts about addressing institutional racism from the provider perspective and excuse me for clearing my throat but I'm froggy Um, but I think that we might need to schedule that conversation for another podcast because I think you and I could talk about that all day long that's a whole other conversation okay well I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you to that and um, okay but I do want to ask you two more questions you ready Okay. Okay. How would you fill in the blank on this statement? Nobody ever told me that. Being a mom would be my greatest joy and my greatest challenge. (laughs) Yep. Isn't that the truth? I had no idea if you were asking me as a from a personal perspective or from a clinical perspective, but that really is the first thing that came to mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, from all perspectives, you know. So then, Mm -hmm. my last question is pretty pertinent. Where are you in your life as a mom? Um, Well, I'm in a very good spot, actually. My boys are. 10 and 13 and they are smart and um, connected and kind and conscious and silly um, fun to be around and they haven't become totally obnoxious teenagers yet, (laughs) but are independent, are relatively independent and Mm -hmm. self-sufficient. So I'm feeling like I'm in a, in a real sweet spot um, of parenthood. Yeah, you are. I always tell people, um, you will be your best parent at different phases. Mm -hmm. And so don't beat yourself up if you're not, I can't do toddlers. I'm just not good at it. I, I, <laughs> they they blow my mind. Yeah. Um, but I, of course, like I love new babies. I sure. love 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 new babies, mm-hmm. and I've really enjoyed some elementary school age, um, middle school um, kids. It's been lots of fun. Uh, there's nobody more difficult in life than a four year old. That's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do four. I can't do it. They don't make any sense to me. I don't get it. How are they put together? What do they do? How do they work? Every time, you know, and, and I've raised a few kids here. I consider myself fairly good at it until that year. And then I go, what? And I get the book out and I go, oh, okay, they're doing this developmental process. And you've been a really good sport for a few years and it's a rough spot. That's it. 
Yeah. <clears throat> well, exactly. So I'm, I think we have to, you we know, have... as we as we go into parenthood in birth and as parents, we have to just give ourselves a little bit of grace. Yeah. And know that it's not it's not easy. It's not easy, but you know what? We just don't have to be perfect all the time. We just don't. We it's okay for us to be just fine. You know? I mean, I think that as parents, we always aspire to be the best that we possibly can. But then if we're always doing that, then what are we telling our kids that, you know, you can't just be yourself? Absolutely. You know, can can I just be frizzy haired and grumpy? (laughs) You know, can I just be (laughs) busy with my work today and not, you know, can't we just be us? It's okay if we are, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Amanda, and I am holding you to it that you and I are going to be talking again real soon. Cool? Yes, absolutely. More to follow, my dear. To be continued. (laughs) Thanks, Amanda. We'll talk again. All right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama Our guest today was Amanda Calhoun, MD, obstetrician, gynecologist at Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, California. She tweets by the name of at K-P-O-B-G-Y-N doc. Go find her over there on Twitter, will ya? Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You can learn more about me over on my website, genefaulkner.com. Thanks for listening, subscribing, leaving me a rockin' hot review, tweeting me at Gene Faulkner. Oh, and buy the book, will ya? And we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye.